0: to the City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforresthills.org. Uh, good morning again. Uh, my name is Steven, I'm the lead pastor here at City on the Hill. Just thankful that you're all here uh, today um, as we uh, gather for this first Sunday of Advent. and just wanna welcome you, uh, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. Uh, we'd love to get to know you a little bit better. You can fill out a connection card. Uh, you can find that in your seat. Uh, and uh, for doing so, uh, or you can fill, fill it online online at coah salesorg slash connect. Um, for doing so, we'll uh, make a $5 donation in your name to a charity of your choice from a list we, that we provide. And also make a, I give you a $5 gift card to Brassica Coffee Shop just around the corner. Uh, and so, again, we're just glad that you're here today. Um, our values as a church are the gospel community and mission. The gospel is the good news uh, that we were once separated from God because of our sin and that Jesus Emmanuel came, lived, in, lived the life that we could never live, died in our place, the death we deserved, rose again so that we could have new life. And anyone that places their faith in him will be saved. And so if you've not entered into that life-giving relationship with Jesus, we would love to talk with you about taking that next step this morning. Secondly, is community. Community is the idea that God created us for relationships. We need each other. We were created to need each other, and because of that, we uh, spend time together. We we do this in community groups as a church. People from different backgrounds and cultures coming together with a common hope in Jesus. And so, um, would uh, would love for you to get plugged into a community group if you've not done so already. You can fill that out on your connection card. You can drop that in the box in the back. And then, lastly, uh, mission. The good news is too good to keep to ourselves. So we demonstrate the gospel because if what Jesus has done for us. We also declare the good news of the gospel with this life-giving message that anyone can come to faith in Christ. Um, a, a few announcements before we jump into the text this morning. Uh, the first is uh, we are going to be do- assembling a food pantry at English High School this Friday. So Sam Gargas is leading the charge on that. Um, and so if uh, you are interested in that, just grab Sam. Sam, raise your hand. There he is, there's Sam. Um, and just uh, just let him know you wanna come there or just show up at English High School at three. Uh, we had a bit of a false start last week uh, before Thanksgiving. We were hoping to do something for uh, serving meals, but ran into some issues with some COVID stuff and some, um, some quarry checks and just being able to have access while students are there. But being at 3 p.m., no students will be there. So we're clear, uh, but we'd love for you to come help out with that. We've been serving this, uh, English High School in this way for almost two years, uh, providing uh, food and meals for, uh, for, for uh, um, underserved families. Families. And so would love for you to come help out with that. Uh, coming up this next Saturday, December 4th, we're having our Discover class. Discover class is for those who are ready to take that next step toward membership. Um, it, you don't have to become a member through this, but this is the first step they're doing so. And as you do this, you learn more about who we are as a church, um, um, what we believe, uh, how we live, kind of ways you can be involved. And so I would encourage you to sign up for that through our event page, go to the website, go to events and click on that. Uh, there will be breakfast provided. If you need childcare, let us know. We'll make sure we get child care provided as well. And then lastly, coming up on Saturday, December 18th, we're having a Lessons and Carols service. And so Lessons and Carols is a unique take on a, an old tradition of scripture reading and then singing through Christmas songs together. So we're gonna have some local musicians from around Boston um, who are gonna help with this. Would really encourage you to sign up for this early. We are doing signups for this because space is going to be limited. And so um, we already have uh, almost 40 people signed up already. Half of those are not from our congregation, which is really exciting. And so this is a great way to invite your friends, invite your neighbors. If you've been wanting to invite someone to church, this is a really good step to do because it's very low pressure. We're just celebrating the holidays together. So I would encourage you to do that. Um, now, I don't know about you, but I love music and I, I particularly I love live music. I love going to concerts. And so I'd love for just a couple of people, shout out, what is the best live musical performance you've ever seen? Oh, you didn't know audience participation. You didn't know that. Anybody? What's the best live musical performance you've ever seen? Foo Fighters. Okay, that's good. Metallica. What? I can't hear you. Eric. Oh, gosh, you win. Eric Clapton. Um, So so a few people threw those out there. I love music. My two favorite were Outkast and uh, the John Mayer Trio, very different, um, but enjoyed both of those. Outcast was an incredible show. I got thrown into a tree. That's another story for another day. Um, And the other was the John Mayer Trio because it was, I just love blues music. And so I love live music. And one of the aspects of the the pandemic over the last almost two years that I've really missed is the ability to sit in a room with people and sing. That's why I love, love, one reason I love church on a Sunday is we get to sing together, but I miss concerts. I miss being able to go and just sing my lungs out to to some music that I know. Uh, And so you probably have missed opera and concerts and symphonies and going to a play, um, even going to a movie. These are things that we are meant to experience with with other people. And just for a couple of hours, we unite around a common interest or like. Uh, When I was younger, I would go to all these music festivals. And one that I never got a chance to go to was called Furnace Fest. Now Furnace Fest was really loud, screaming hard rock music, like ear bleeding music. I love this. In fact, I sermon, prep to that kind of music a lot, a lot of times too. Um, and so I love that kind of music. Never got to go. Well they were having their 20th anniversary show this past year and there's this Facebook group that built up around it and people were really excited and they were talking about this. You know, people argued about stuff in this group because you know it's Facebook and that's what you do. Um, but it always came back to this united interest in going to Furnace Fest. And people came together from different backgrounds, some political ideologies and all coming together for their love of music. But when really, when that was over, when the concert's over, when the play's over, when the show's over, you just go back to your everyday life. It, it's done. You're not inviting these people over for dinner. You're probably not going to be friends with most of the people you're sitting next to. It, it's, it's a shallower type of unity around a common interest. The, the, the unity that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4 is a deeper unity a transcendent unity that goes beyond any other type of unity that we can imagine. And it's not just this, it's that the type of unity that Paul is talking about allows us to dig into the hard stuff. It allows us to ask the hard questions. It allows us to have hard conversations because our unity doesn't stop the moment we leave here at 10.30 on a Sunday morning. The unity that we have together is a unity that is bond, bounded together for us in Christ, And so Paul, as he's talking about this unity, he's saying that the unity that we are longing for as the church will only last as long as what unifies us is strong. I'm gonna say that again. Unity will only last as long as what unifies us is strong. And what unifies us as Christians, as the church, is the gospel of Jesus Christ the common hope that we have in Jesus. And as as if Paul is saying this in Ephesians 4 to the Ephesian church and ultimately to us is that what unifies you is so strong, it's so mighty that it can keep you together. It can weather the test of time. It can weather controversy. It can weather strife. And he's saying, I want you to truly love these people because you are a part of a larger family. Because you're a part of a big family with a greater unity that you can muster on your own. And so as we look at Ephesians 4, Paul has turned fully to the how of the church. Ephesians 1 through 3 was this grand vision of what the church could be, this beautiful redeemed community who are rejoicing in the common hope they have in Christ, that their sins have been forgiven. They're brought together as this big new family. And that's a big, beautiful vision. But in verse four, or in chapter 4, we start to see the how. Verse 1, it says, "'I therefore, a prisoner, for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called.'" He wanted them to actually live out the vision of the type of church that he knew that they could be. My prayer for City and a Hill is that we would become the church that God wants us to be. A church that is embodying the culture of the gospel. We are loving and caring for each other in the way that Jesus loves and cares for us. A church that is formed by gospel teaching, that we submit ourselves to the Bible, believing that what God has for us is better than what we could have for ourselves and that we would have a gospel mission, that we would go and take this good news to others. We have a great calling to which we have been called. We have a common purpose. And much like Paul, I'm urging us to take hold of that calling, to take hold of the vision of unity that God has for us. And Paul uses the word urge, he's actually throwing his weight around a little bit as an apostle, he's, he's begging them, he's pleading for them to make this a reality. He wants this for them and he wants this because he wants to see the gospel advance through them into the clearest way for our neighbors and friends to see the work of Christ is God's work in us to unify us around the gospel. That's why in John 13, 35, Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If your love for one another is being so shaped by the love of Jesus that other people begin to see it, they'll begin to see our unity and there's something attractive about that. But Paul also urges them and he urges us to take hold of this vision, to live out this life, to walk in a manner worthy of that calling because this is the hardest thing he could ask us to do. It's gonna require a change in the way we live. It says walk in a manner worthy. In other words, there is a way that we can walk this unworthy. Walking is the idea of, of our living, our very being. He's saying that those things have to change in order for us to take hold of all that God wants us to be all that God wants us to live and experience as a unified church. And this is why last week we looked at Paul's prayer to strengthen us to do far more than God could ever imagine. My vision for City on a Hill is not that we would have a room full of people who simply like each other. We'd have a room full of people who think like us and look like us and act like us, but a beautiful, diverse family called together with this common hope in Christ. And you know what, sometimes that's messy. Sometimes it feels impossible. But what Paul's saying by urging us to walk this way is he said, it's hard, but it's not impossible. It's difficult, but it's worth it. Tony Evans says that unity is not always easy, but God tells us it's worth it. Together, we can be greater than any of us alone will ever be. Unity is this admission that we need each other, that we're better together than we are apart. It's an admission that we are for each other, that we're willing to lay down our privileges and lay down our rights for the sake of other people to know Jesus. And so for City and a Hill, what would happen if we leaned into the power and the provision that God promises us to become who he wants us to be? This morning, we're gonna cover three ideas about this biblical unity for City and a Hill. The first is three attitudes for pursuing unity. There are three attitudes that we're going to have to step into as a church, as individuals, that are going to require a major shift in our attitudes towards the church. And so when I say the word church, probably you're thinking through two lenses. You might be thinking through the organizational lens. You're thinking through structures and systems and Sundays and groups. Others are thinking through the relational lens. They're thinking through the people. And through both of these, there is equal opportunity to both thrive and to be hurt. There's equal opportunity for us both to, to, to really love it and to struggle. and But what's gonna be called for us to, in order for us to pursue this unity is our attitude is gonna have to shift towards the way we see church. And so if we look at verse two, we see three attitudes that we need to bring towards what it means to be a unified church. And those three are humility, gentleness, and patience. Say those with me, humility, gentleness, Patience tattoo those on your arm, do something. we got to remember those three because those three attitudes run completely counter to our Western culture. Those three attitudes require us to think of other people first. They require us to be more collectivistic than individualistic, which is really ingrained in what it means to be a Westerner. In the West, we don't value humility. We don't value gentleness. We don't value patience. We value confidence and ambition and bravado and taking charge. These are the things we look for in a leader. If your company was trying to hire a CEO, they're not looking for the most humble person. They're looking for the most ambitious person. They're not looking for the most gentle person. They're looking for the person who has a track record of being able to turn around businesses. And it even seems odd for Paul to say, I urge you to do something that feels very slow. I urge you to get busy towards something that feels like I'm calling you to hurry up and wait. But the very attitudes of gentleness and humility and patience are the way that Jesus has called us to thrive in the church. The very ways that he has called us to live and humility is listed first because I think it is the most important attitude that we bring to the church's unity. The word means lowly, to take a lowly position, to, to empty ourselves. And, and when we think about this idea of being lowly and empty, it's not passivity. It's not being passive. It's actually actively humbling ourselves. It takes restraint to not buy into your own sense of entitlement. That I deserve something. This humility is actively submitting ourselves to other people, actively focusing on the good of another person over our own good first. It means allowing other people to get attention and accolade when that's what we truly want. And if we are going to be unified, it is going to require us to consider what other people want first. It's gonna require us to lay down our preferences. Tim Keller says there are four enemies of of humility, four ways of living that humility truly opposes. And one of those is drivenness. You can be so driven that you fail to be humble. You can even humble brag. You can brag about how humble you are. The thing about humility is the second that you start to talk about it, it runs away. But we can be so driven and so focused on our career and our path and our five-year plan and our, our desires that we fail to consider other people. The second enemy is scornfulness. That we're constantly looking at other people down our nose. And we're, we're constantly wondering why that person acts that way. And why do they think that way? And why do they buy that? And why do they sin like that? It can be const- we constantly think scornfully. It can be an unwillingness to change. Just an inability to change and lay down our own preferences for the sake of another. And, and even to think through like some of us, we, we are very timely people. Others of us are not. And it's hard for us to even take something like that and think that you know being on time is a sign of holiness. Um, I struggle with that. I, I kind of do sometimes. But it, it, I have to change it then. I have to think that not everybody thinks like me. We have to have a willingness to change, a willingness to submit ourselves to God, God's word. That takes humility. And lastly, self-consciousness. Now, being self-conscious doesn't seem like it fits the other three, but what's rooted in all four of those ways of living that oppose humility is pride. And self-consciousness can be a form of pride, even though it seems anti-prideful, because when you're self-conscious, who are you thinking about? Me, yourself. The focus is still on you. And so if you're constantly wondering, am I enough? Should Should I speak in this situation? Do I belong in this room? Do these people really like me? All it's doing is pointing the attention to yourself. And this is why C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And it's incredibly freeing when we take on true biblical humility because you realize that everything you need and everything you desire and everything that you need to fulfill and satisfy yourself is found in Christ. So you don't have to boast in your own claims. In your own marriage. You don't have to constantly point toward what you've done in order to feel like you belong. See, humble people ask good questions. If you ever notice about somebody who's truly humble, they're always asking you about how you're doing. They ask you how your day is going. What where's your heart at? And the question is: is do you ask good questions? Are you a humble person? Secondly, gentleness. We need to be gentle people. And the word gentle uh, can sometimes be translated as meek. And meekness is not weakness. They're not the same thing. But meek, uh, meekness or gentleness is actually strength under control. It's the ability to harness our passions in a, in a life-giving way. And so when I think of this, the image that comes to mind is Superman. I love comic books and I love comic book movies. But imagine Superman who has superhuman strength Um, can fly. And one comic actually flew so fast that he stopped the rotation of the earth. He can pick up anything. At every single moment of Superman's life, as he's dealing with regular humans, he has to show restraint. If he were to hug or embrace Lois Lane, if he wasn't careful, he would crush her with his superhuman strength. That's what I imagine gentleness to be like, is we take the passions of our heart and we constrain them in such a way that gives life to other people. And this is why Aristotle said that that gentleness was truly the proper balance between always being angry and never being angry about anything. It's the ability to channel that, channel that passion in a gentle way for the sake of other people. If you wanna know if you're gentle or not, here's a great question you can ask. How do other people experience me? It's kind of a scary question. How do other people experience me? A couple years ago, I was asked this question and I thought, well, everybody loves me, of course. Like, they, everybody thinks I'm great. But as I began to ask a few people, I began to, people, people would say, you know what, you're not as gentle as you think you are. You say things sometimes and you just kind of say them. You're not as encouraging as I would hope for. And when we really ask ourselves that question, it helps us understand whether we're gentle or not. Are you a gentle person? Thirdly, patience. The idea of long-suffering There's an old adage that you should never ask God for patience because he will find a way to try your patience. If you think you're a patient person, just go to a place with slow Wi-Fi. Um, We are, none of us are all that patient. And when we think about the way that we engage with other people, what do you do when it seems that other people just don't get it? This is the millionth time you've talked about this. What do you do when that person just does not seem to change? What do you do when you see someone struggling with the same sin over and over and over again? What do you do when church isn't everything you hope for? The easy thing to do is just to write people off, but patience says, I'm gonna wait and trust the same spirit that is in work in me is, in work, is at work in them. Why this list? Why humility? Why gentleness? Why patience? Because this is the very way and character of Jesus. This is who Jesus is. And if we are going to be unified like Jesus wants us to be, we have to become like him. And this is why in Matthew 11:29 29, it says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is gentle and lowly. We've been reading gentle and lowly as community groups and this is my plug to invite you to come to a community group I mean, really reframing the idea of, of who is Jesus? Jesus is not, he's not, I mean, Jesus is passionate for, for God's glory. He's passionate for God's law, but he's also a gentle and lowly savior who invites us to come find rest in him. Dane Orland said in that book, he says, lowly gentleness is not the one way Jesus occasionally acts towards us. Gentleness is who he is. It is his heart. If we're gonna be unified, we have to take on these attitudes. And the question is, are these the attitudes that mark you when it comes to how you see the church? How you see city on a hill? Are you a humble person? Or are you constantly maneuvering for the respect and the attention of other people? Or are you taking time to dignify others and care for them and make sure that they're heard? Are you a gentle person? Someone bothers you? And listen, if you're in close relational proximity with people, they're going to bother you. How do you react? What is your heart like on the inside? When someone admits their failures and their faults to you, are, are you a safe place or are you a judgmental person? Are you a patient person? You look at somebody and go, you know, I just need you to change already. Or are you, are you slow in trusting that God will work in that person? And I found that when we don't embody humility, gentleness, and patience towards others in the church, it's because of one of two reasons. One is that we, we've grown cynical. We're, we're constantly critical. We're critical of others' motives and we're questioning their motives. We're questioning others' genuine, if they're being genuine, because oftentimes we don't feel genuine. We look at other people and think that they're just hypocrites. And we see through everything. And when you see through everything, you don't see anything at all. And I found that when when you grow cynical, it's because either you lack humility. And I really honestly think that's not always the case. I think it's generally a mound of hurt. That you were once an idealist and someone or something wrecked that. You've seen this ideal that Jesus laid out for his people and you're like, I'm not seeing anybody live this out. You've grown cynical or you've grown weary. You're just tired. Some of you have brought baggage to City on a Hill from other churches and other experiences and you're seeing everything through that lens of weariness And you're just tired and you just want to see your friend finally change. You want to see your spouse finally change the way that they treat you. You want to see a situation finally get resolved. For some, it's the idea of racial justice. We look and we go, why don't other people just finally get it? Maybe it's yourself. You've grown weary with the idea that you just can't stop sinning. You desire to grow and you're frustrated because you don't see the progress you want to see. Maybe. It's that God is working in your waiting and it's not that he just wants you to do better or he wants to make a situation better, but he wants you to learn to patiently trust him as you walk with him. When we hear that Jesus is like this and we see Jesus as the ideal of humility and gentleness and patience, we see this as something that we're supposed to do. And if you try to just live up to that, you're gonna find that Jesus makes a terrible ideal if he's only an example. He makes a terrible ideal if he's only an example because none of us can possibly live up to the way that Jesus lived. I don't know if anybody remembers the WWJD bracelets. Anybody remember those from way back in the day? Everybody wore a WWJD bracelet. I knew that they had arrived when Allen Iverson was wearing one on a basketball court. I think he had like 12 of them in every color. The WWJD bracelets was what would Jesus do if you're not familiar with that. And everybody wore it. It was supposed to be this thing that you looked at to remind you to, in, in any moment, like, what would Jesus do? Jesus would probably not swear at this person in traffic. So I'm not gonna do that. And the problem with that is if we're only looking at Jesus as an example and an ideal, it will let us down. He will let us down because we could never live up to it. But what if I told you that there were hope, there's hope for cynical and weary people? to actually live this out as the church. So we have to understand what empowers our unity. The second idea is that there is a unity behind our unity. There is a unity behind our unity. So I want us to look at verses four through six. And if you're a sequential person, I promise we're coming back to verse three. We're just gonna hit it at the end. I know that bothers a few of you. We're gonna get there. Verses four through six, we see the word one used seven times. The word one is used seven times in three verses, and that word one is to symbolize the unity that we have together in Christ. And if you notice that three of those times are in relation to God directly, the other four are derived from our relationship with him. All seven instances of our unity are wrapped up in who God is. And so Paul is trying to tell us something, that our unity has a unity behind it a better and more secure unity, that God himself is the very source of our unity. God himself is the very source of our oneness and that our unity is actually wrapped up in the very essence of who God is, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are one God in three persons, the Trinity. The Trinity is the foundational doctrine of Christianity that we have one God in three persons. We see this unity, this this three-in-one in in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If you want to nerd out a little bit, the word for God there is the word Elohim. The word Elohim is a plural word. The word El is the word for God. Him makes it a plural. The Lord our God, multiplicity, is one in unity and in essence. What's being said there is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one in this beautiful Trinitarian community, and that they have been for eternity, and that they're displaying the perfect love of God to one another. They're perfectly humble, perfectly gentle, perfectly patient. And that's important because the unity that we require to be the church is embodied and fueled by that unity. God displays his love for us as an overflow of the love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So it is the very essence. It's what drives our unity, but it is also the ideal. Jesus' great desire in John chapter 17 was that we would be one as what? As he and the Father were one. Our unity as the church is possible because of God's perfect unity in the Trinity and how each member is working in us now. Because we are, we have one spirit. Because we have one spirit, we have one body that Jew and Gentile are brought together as one, not as separate, not as two families, not as two separate churches, but as having one hope in a single Christ. That means there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Now, historically, the church has not lived out this ideal as well as we should have. As God sees the church, he sees one people, one body, one purpose. But there is a distance between the ideal and our experience of this oneness and body. And sometimes there's, there's various reasons for why we are separated. And, and I don't have time to go into all the reasons theologically. In fact, I might actually jump on IGTV this week and just talk about why do we have different churches and different denominations, just as a way to, 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 um, to talk about that. But there are reasons that the churches separate. There are reason the church, good reasons even the churches separate. But a lot of times it's relational. You can actually go to the Old North Church in the North End right now and notice that pews have numbers. And not like here, where we have these for COVID reasons. Um, They had numbers because people could buy their seats. And the more money you had, the closer you could sit at the front. And if you look at the back, it was the place for those who were common or places for those who were possibly those who were were slaves or those who were considered second-class citizens. We have a nasty black eye on the American church, which is slavery, in that slavery treated black people who would often go to white churches in ways where they were not treated as if they were made in the image of God. In fact, people would, would take a, a kind of bastardized version of the Bible, they would, a slave Bible, which only had about 16 of the 66 books in the Bible and use it as a means to subjugate black people, telling them they weren't made in the image of God, would not allow them to sit with white people and it caused, in fact, many black denominations exist because white churches failed to live out Ephesians 4.4. We've we, we failed as the American church in this at times. And, and though I think now we would say, no, like we, 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 we recognize our past, we see what's happened. We, we see there's a distance between the experience of our unity and the ideal of our unity. And it makes living this out harder at times and there's this massive divide. And so what we have to do is we have to admit it Here's the beauty of the gospel. You can admit how deep of a sinner you are and believe that Jesus will make make that right. We gotta dig deep and seek reconciliation. And because we have one Lord, it means we rejoice in the same gospel, which means that forgiveness and grace is possible. Because the Lord is Jesus, because we have a hope in him, we have hope through the same faith. Faith can mean either the content or the body of our beliefs like it does in Jude 3, or it can mean like it does here, a personal trust in Jesus that we have one faith, meaning that everyone gets in on the same basis, whether you're Jew or Gentile, black or white, rich or poor, young or old, male or female, all of us need Jesus and all of us can be saved through the work of Jesus. And because we have one Lord, it gives us space to work out where we have failed to live up to that ideal. We also have one baptism Not not mode of baptism, but what baptism does in us. It gives us a new identity. Jesus in the Great Commission said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations doing what? Baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is signifying that we belong to God. It's going public with our faith. It's showing we have a new allegiance. It shows that something new defines us first, that we are known by our relationship with God. And this changes us in two ways. It means you're no longer defined by your sin. You're no longer defined by your past. You're no longer defined by your struggles, but you're defined by who Jesus declares you to be in the gospel. But secondly, it doesn't erase who you are. Now, it seems like one and two are sort of kind of at odds with each other, but it doesn't erase who you are. In fact, it refines who you are. It enhances who you are. It redeems who you are. You don't cease to be white or black. You don't cease to be male or female. You don't cease to be whatever your upbringing was, but it's almost like an Instagram filter that makes certain things pop out. When we have that that, almost like a filter of who God is and who we are in him over us, it enhances and vivifies who we are and we celebrate that. Lastly, because God is father to all Christians, it shows us how we can achieve this unity together it says in verse six that one God and father of all who is overall, we have a God who's sovereign, meaning that we have to submit to him. We recognize his ways are higher than our ways, meaning his timing and his method and his goal are better than ours. And when we recognize that and trust that God is overall, it actually leads to a greater joy and contentment in him. We have a God who is through all, meaning he is imminent and working through all of us to achieve this unity. And he is in all, working in all sorts of people to do it. When I I think of God's vision for Boston through City on a Hill, I imagine educated people and poor and destitute people, people who are stressed and anxious, the sexually broken, the hurting, all finding life and healing in God. And why do I believe that God's gonna do that? Because we're here. Now, I don't mean that because City on a Hill is a perfect church. I mean that that we're heroes, but that we're recipients of the same grace. And in fact, when Paul was talking to the Corinthians, he lists out this long list of sins. And at the end of that, he says, in which you were once that. That's my, my paraphrase. You were once those things. God's work in Boston begins with his unifying work in the church. Lastly, I wanna close out with two applications for making this unity a reality. We're going back to the end of verse two, beginning of verse three. End of verse two, it says, bearing with one another in love. We had to wait for this until the end because the love that Jesus calls us to bear with other people is so much deeper than our own. Dane Ortland said, Jesus does not love like us. We love until we're betrayed. Jesus continues or continued to the cross despite betrayal. We love until we are forsaken. Jesus loved through forsakenness. We love up to a limit. Jesus loves to the end. In the Ephesian church, I'm sure that, that tensions got high at times. Jew and Gentile probably struggled and there's probably some PTSD. I'm sure there were things that were said and done that were triggering. So what would bearing with one another in love look like? It might look like when a Jewish brother said something to a Gentile brother that the Gentile brother wasn't gonna react the way that his heart wanted to. He he was gonna choose to love that person like Jesus loved them and saw them. That's really hard. If we're gonna be unified, it's gonna take us bearing with one another's mistakes, bearing with one another's stupid comments, bearing with, with the slights that we might make toward one another because we're willing to pursue reconciliation and extend forgiveness with humility, gentleness, and patience. Lastly, we need to be eager, as verse three says, to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now notice it doesn't say attain this, it says maintain the unity. The unity we've been given has been given to us through the work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus did all of that, but to maintain that is to make it more visible, It's to make this a lived reality. So imagine there's a family, and John Stott had this great illustration. He said, imagine there's a family and this family's estranged. And the mom and dad, they've been, they've been at odds for years. And they finally get a divorce and they begin to separate relationally, well, the kids begin to grow apart as well. And this family decides they're gonna get as far apart as they possibly can. So dad's in North America, mom's in South America. Uh, one of the sons went to Europe, one went to Asia, one went to Africa. Now, relationally, like legally, they are still a family in a sense. But relationally, they're as distant as they possibly can be. In order to maintain or to make that visible, someone would have to work toward reconciling those two together, that family together. And so to be eager to maintain this or make this a reality means, the word literally means to do whatever it takes. We have to be willing to do whatever it takes to make the unity that we have in Christ be experienced to a greater degree. It means that we might have to have some hard conversations. It might mean that we need to stay in a conversation past our comfort level. It might mean that we have to sacrifice deeply. It means leaning in when we want to lean out. But we also maintain this by celebrating what God is doing among us. I pray that we become an even more diverse, more effective, beautiful picture of what God is doing as we rest in the unity we have in Christ. But we need to celebrate the ways that God is making this a reality. We were at the uh, church retreat a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago, and my friend Jason um, came and he spoke to us at an incredible job. And he said, one of the things he looked at when he looked at the City on the Hill Network, he said, I've never seen a more diverse group of people in my life. And, he's, and he, said, I'm not, he said, I'm not just talking like, ethnically. He said I'm talking about temperament. He said we got like nerds over here, we got free birds over here, we got the young, we got the old. He said I've never seen anything like this in my life. We need to celebrate what God's doing among us as we look to the unity that he has given us as the church. A couple of things as we just uh, next steps as we close. Which one of these attitudes do you need to grow in? Is it gentleness, is it humility, is it patience? Which application do you need to press into? Maybe you need to bear with other people in love. You need to be more patient in how you love other people or allow other people to love you with patience. Maybe it's that you need to be more eager in maintaining unity. What's the step God wants to call you to in order to make this more visible? And lastly, where do you need to believe in the unity that God provides? Maybe you need to take a step with embracing being part of a body. Maybe you need to come to the Discover class and discover what it looks like to be a member of a church. Maybe it's faith. Maybe you need to take the step this morning and place your faith in Christ alone to save you. Maybe it's baptism that you need to go public in declaring your faith to others through water baptism. We'd love for you to come talk to us about that. But let's press into the unity Jesus bought for us on the cross and that he's promised to make a reality in us. Let's pray.